Sonic Solidarity is sponsored in part by the Michigan Council for the Arts and Humanities, the National Endowment for the Arts, our patrons at patreon.com, and listeners like you. Learn more about Detroit Sound Conservancy, browse hundreds of artifacts, oral histories, photographs, and recordings, and join our mailing list at detroitsound.org. All right. Uh, we have with us uh, Miss Pamela Wise, uh, Detroiter, uh, musician, pianist, composer. Uh, Pamela, uh, who, can you describe a little bit about who you are and what is your relationship to Detroit music? Um, well, I describe myself as a modern day um, jazz pianist and composer that um, focuses on use, fusing Afro-Cuban rhythms and and jazz uh, together. Um, I, to you know, I'm I'm a surviving uh, cultural warrior in Detroit. I often use uh, my artistic talents to be a voice for the community in terms of different things that are that are going on and what our community residents might be facing. And you are not from uh, uh, Michigan. You came to Michigan uh, from 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 Ohio. Yeah, I'm originally from uh, Steubenville, Ohio. Not Stupidville, Steubenville. <laughs> a right. lot of people are like I Steubenville down. No, Steubenville is where Dean Martin is from. My dad grew up and went to school with Dean Martin. So that's one of the star crowns of our little small mining town of Steubenville. And and, and where's that Cuban, I mean, Detroit, Michigan, and Ohio were pretty far away from Cuba, one one might think. So where does that come from for you? Where where does that, uh, where is that? Well, I think... Um, as a musician, I think it comes from uh, probably my ancestry. Um, I know I have uh, descendants from Africa. I don't know about Cuba, but I just mm-hmm. think that, you know, being an African-American, that, that it, it's really a natural thing, you know. So, And it, and it was surprising because I would always hear those rhythms in all American music just about, so... It's not really that far-fetched. I just wanted to uh, trace my ancestors a little more and investigate um, why I hear that music and why I see it prominent in dance and and everything else that we do. So I just think that it's amazing how uh, those rhythms have carried on for thousands of years. Pam, uh, could you, are you the first, I know we've talked about this before, but you're definitely not the first musician in your family. Can you just briefly say, uh, you know, what the background of your, your musicianship is, if there were other musicians in your family, or if you were the, I, I'm pretty sure when we've talked before, you are not the first musician uh, in your family. Oh, no, my father was a, a jazz um, upright bass player that had a jazz trio that was pretty popular that uh, traveled around the states of Pennsylvania, West Virginia, and Ohio. 
And of course, when his kids like me started coming along, he also got a gig in the post office that he worked for over 40 years, but he always continued to play music. And so he was a postal worker and a musician. Yes. Uh, I'm thinking about our postal workers these days. Uh, you, you must be thinking of them uh, as well. They're right on the front lines of all of this. Yeah, I, I, I think of the postal workers all the time because, you know, my dad was a postal worker in a very small town. And um, like I said, he can always continue to play music, but he was also like everybody knew my father and loved him. You know, so he was kind of like this postal carrier mayor kind of personality, you know, so I, I couldn't get away with too much. <laughs> right. School teachers. Right. Because he delivered mail to all their houses. So. Sure. I, I, you're, you're making me remember that uh, Dudley Randall, the great uh, poet from Detroit, was also a postal worker and that most artists and musicians in Detroit really are, I mean, most people aren't privileged enough, honestly, to, to, to be a full-time musician, you know, uh, you know, most people have to have some other kind of income. How long have you been what, what you would call a professional musician? Um, well, I left my, I had a couple of day jobs when I first moved to Detroit. Um, and I would say that I quit my day job around in 1983. So that's when I became a full-time musician. And what allowed that to happen? What, what was the what was the key? Uh, yeah, what was happening back in 1983? It's getting further and further away now, Pamela. Yeah, yeah, because you know, um, I found out you know I was only working entry-level jobs, and I could make just as much money or more playing, you know, four and five nights a week. Of course, that's the way gigs were. Um, back then, right? You had you had more venues to play, but it's not quite that like that now. I often kind of worry about our younger musicians and trying to, you know, encourage them to continue their education and not rely on, um, you know, little gigs to keep you going because it's just not enough now. You know, that's 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 not a good future to, to keep playing at. Uh, every Joe and Joe's bar all the time. It's just, you know, you can't support a family like that. Right. It's not a, it's, it's difficult to see the American dream uh, as a musician. Um, it's probably always been difficult, but uh, yeah, it seems when you can't put a steady gig in together, right. Uh, you know, where you're pulling something specific, right. Each week, you know, yeah, and then you know, and it, and it's different times now because I even remember listening to, um, you know, some of the uh, master players who were kind of fortunate enough, um, in a way, to have record contracts and, right, you know, maybe the label. Like if you were playing with the band and you were kind of um, like a really great player, they might pick you up and. Uh, you know, put records out on you and promote you and open the doors for like touring and stuff like that. But the industry is, has really changed quite a bit um, from those days. And especially now with this COVID-19, I'm not really sure uh, what is going to be on the um, horizon for, for musicians, you know, that's live performance um, and with them limiting 
limited gatherings and that kind of thing. I don't know. Uh, you know, we're going to have to get quite creative here in terms of uh, making a pathway for our youth. Yeah. Well, let's let's get to that. Let's take another minute here, though, and just uh, so we talked a little bit about, uh, you know, sort of a little bit uh, how you grew up and, you know, you know, being a professional musician, um, you you are you run a record label, right? Rebirth is talk talk a little bit about what Rebirth is and and how you actually put out music, right? Because you don't have you're not you don't have a major label contract, right? But you put out uh, records because you guys have your own capacity to do those kinds of things. So just talk a little bit about your creative output in normal times. Let's let's we'll we'll leave COVID for a second. We'll talk about. Uh, what you were doing before uh, the pandemic? Well, uh, of course, you know, um, my husband, Wendell Harrison, is the founder, co-founder of Tribe Records um, with with Phil Ramlin. And they've always put out their own music. And um, we continued the Tribe label uh, up to a certain point. Um, Then it kind of changed over to Rebirth and Winha. And Mm -hmm. now it's changed back over to Tribe. Because mm-hmm. Tribe has, you know, always continued to put out music, even though um, when a lot of uh, people, you know, thought it disbanded, it really never did. It was always a undercurrent line, underlying current there because we had a lot of um, record labels and distributors and other countries that still wanted to pick up uh, Tribe material and also what we recorded on Rebirth and Winha. So we've always been like an independent um, record label that would pick right. up distribution um, from other labels in other countries. Um, Rebirth um, is basically a nonprofit organization right. um, that Wendell and Harold McKinney founded back in like around in 1979 because they wanted an educational arm. Um of what we were doing so we could focus in on teaching younger jazz musicians and providing opportunities uh, for them educational wise, but also giving them opportunities to play and record and, and work. And uh, we still been able to continue to do that through grant funding and, and grant programs. And I know you said that, you know, I was this administrator, but I'm not really that great of an <laughs> administrator. I mean, these are things that I, I try to help put in place because, right. um, you know, I mean, I, I from working day jobs, I do have some type of office and organizational skills. So I always try to lend that, um, try to lend that to uh, Wendell and Harold. So, you know, we could continue to uh, to build off of that. And then over time, we brought in other people. Um, like yourself, and mm-hmm. uh, so we could continue our projects and, and and to do what we do. And today, we're still doing that. Um, Wendell, uh, he not also teaches for the Detroit High School of Performing Arts twice a week as a jazz improvisational instructor, but he also provides outlets for the young musicians to come over on Tuesdays. He created the upper room series where they could come over and um, continue their jazz improvisational studies. And out of that, you know, he hires them for gigs and, you know, it just kind of goes on and on and on because uh, at different times, Rebirth would go to different middle schools 
in high schools and play for the kids and stuff like that. And um, we found out that we started out with about 10 kids that were learning jazz at that time. Now we got about 75 to 100 that are showing other kids how to play. So. And this is over just to give, you know, our audience a sense of perspective. You know, when we're talking about tribe, we're talking about, you write the first tribe uh, live concerts or whatever, right? The sort of the first, the branding of tribe goes back to 1970. Yeah. Yeah. I was still in high school then. So I, I, I wasn't around. <laughs> at right. That time. Is it the anniversary this year or was it last year, the 50th anniversary of tribe? Um, you know, I, I really don't know. I would have to ask Wendell about that. You know, there's some, probably some other fans out there that know more about that than maybe right. even Wendell does, you know, because <laughs> they keep up with it. But even with Rebirth, you're saying it's 79. I mean, this is, you're, you're talking about working uh, in education with youth, you know, for over 30 years. Yeah, yes, yep. Um, I think our first workshop the first grant we got might have been around in 1980 where we held uh, some type of uh, music repair workshop because we found out uh, that a lot of the kids that were in high school, they didn't have decent instruments to play on and the school wasn't yep. fixing them for them. So we held a workshop uh, basically showing them how they could, you know, make basic repairs on their instruments and, and uh, make reads and stuff like that, whatever they, you know, needed to. We couldn't get into, like, you know, uh, redesigning any metal and stuff like sure. that. But, sure, sure. You know, they learned how to basically take care of their instrument and keep it clean and, um, you know, to solve just small problems with that. We found out that that was a really, really big problem for them. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so... But we continue, uh, you know, to try to provide whatever training that we can for them. Um, I think that's one of the most important things. And I, and I think Wendell was not only really inspired, uh, he was inspired by Harold McKinney, you know, to carry on the educational part of that. But also Dr. Amelita Mandingo, who, um, who was a uh, cultural warrior in the city of Detroit. And at the time before I came along, she was running a program called Metro Arts. Uh And um, she hired Harold and Wendell and people like Teddy Harris. And, you know, um, she she had a wonderful program that was going on full time um, to train um, young musicians, dancers, artists, um, whatever, you know, whatever training they need. And they would get professional training. And, um, and I think the city of Detroit, I don't know, I think they're, I've heard bits and pieces that they're trying to recreate that scenario again, but I don't know, know. where we are with that. Is it your, uh, you know, uh, Wendell, uh, Mr. Harrison, you know, went to Northwestern High School on Detroit's west side, not far from the Bluebird, right, where uh, Detroit Sound Conservancy is trying to make our, our mark. And your, uh, you, I know you've done a number of performances with um, Shrine of the Black Madonna. Uh, and, and that's not far uh, in the grand scheme from the Bluebird either. It's like right right there. Uh, you know, talk it's, little- funny, it, it's yeah. funny that you mentioned about that because uh, the founder of the Shrine of the Black Madonna Church was a, you know, he loved jazz, Reverend Albert E. Clay. Um, yep. And he used to hire 
a young a lot of the young jazz musicians who were in that area to come and play at different functions that he would have at the church, at his home, you know, because he he was really involved in it in the youth back in the fifties and sixties and also wanted to provide that same type of, of groundwork to have a great outlet for the youth to to to, to do things that, that were safe for them to do because at that time in Detroit, you know, they had the big Final Four and, yep. you know, they had a lot of problems of uh, racial discrimination around that time. The big four, the police that would right. go around and ask that you uh, ask not so politely for people to, to move along, get off the corner, et cetera, et cetera. Right, right. And, um, you know, Reverend Clegg was... Uh, he was uh, very inspirational in terms of providing outlets for youth in that neighborhood to to do some positive things. And if they had some work or craft that they, you know, that art to offer, he was all into it. And he would encourage them to come in and, and uh, showcase their talents. We should talk at some point, uh, you know, after this conversation, Pam, about... Um, you know, talking about the the, the Al Clay, uh, Reverend Clegg uh, archive, I would love to. You know, if there's a picture of him in the Bluebird, I'd love to. <laughs> I'd love to find one someday. But he was obviously a, a you know, obviously a Christian, but a was Christian national sort of black Christian nationalism. Which is that how you would describe it? Oh, most definitely. He designed a an opportunity and. Uh, I would say um, a great aid to the black community in terms of um, creating a platform for us where we could not, you know, not to get out of the traditional things that we saw in 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 Christian religion um, in terms of the pictures of the white Jesus Christ and right. that that type of thing. He kind of changed that whole narrative for us. And, um, and I think his teaching, um, you know, at first, uh, when I started, um, hanging around the church, I kind of, you know, had gotten a kind of sense of they were kind of stuck in a time zone, but Mm -hmm. now I see that they're greatly needed more than ever that other Mm -hmm. people need to get on board to what we're doing. And, um, and it's not, and it's open to everybody. It's just not for black people. It's mm-hmm. for anybody who wants to do good. You know, our founders mm-hmm. always welcome that, and um, and we continue to do that. There's a uh, last year, or maybe I guess it was a year and a half. I feel it was last year. Herb Boyd uh, came out with a his book uh, about black self determination in Detroit. I'm, I'm I'm fudging the title a little bit there, but. Um, Reverend Al- Al- Albert Klee, definitely part of that longer legacy of of Black Detroiters doing it for themselves, you know. Uh, yeah, and then and we, and, you know, we're gonna have to do it. You know, we we got to do it now because <laughs> all of this stuff is going on. I mean, you know, we're all gonna have to pitch in together and um, and, and come out of this some kind of way, you know. So. Well, what has been the impact? Let's take a minute. Well, what has been the direct impact? Uh, uh, of the 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 pandemic on you uh, your career and Wendell's career are you are you able to for instance maintain you know some of the education programs uh, in other ways or is everything sort of frozen right now? Um, you know it was 
it was, uh, I've been able, Wendell has been, and I, we've been pretty much FaceTiming um, our students. Right. Um, you know, but they're not able to come over on Tuesdays anymore because of the social distancing kind of thing. Right. So we've had to put the Upper Room series on hold, but we're able to, you know, still communicate through FaceTime. Now, I was a little bit disappointed in the Detroit Jazz Foundation because Wendell has been teaching their program at different various high schools, and Marion also, and Galen mm-hmm. McKinney, um, just to mention a few, that's been able to teach programs for the Detroit Jazz Foundation through different high schools and middle schools, which is very important, you know. Um, but when this COVID-19 came up, um, you know, they weren't able to offer any type of not only compensation for the artists, their instructors, but also the fact that they hadn't put any type of thing in place where they could video chat with the students that they had right. or, you know, I mean, it just wasn't, it's, it's not very well thought of program. You know, um, they're fortunate to get these funds from private donations and grants. And but whoever's administrating the program is very limited in thinking of their master instructors. Um, You know, they cancel them for the rest of the school year. And, of course, not providing any type of compensation for them. And, and, And there's only six of them. It's not like a like they're, you know, funding a hundred instructors in the school. It's only six people and they were only running for the school year. So you figured the COVID went down, um, you know, last month, they only had April and May uh, to go, you know, to go to the rest of the road. So I felt that they should have, as instructors, master instructors, they should have been compensated for that time. And also mechanism put in place where, Hey, we can FaceTime, you know, these students and still keep the program going, you know, but yeah. that's my spill on that. But yeah, there's been some things that happened, you know, income has been interrupted. Um, you know, my thing at the church, I mean, I, I still get some compensation from the church, but I guess we won't be gathering again until next month. And, yeah, you know, so stuff happens, you know, but, uh, we just yeah. got to hang in there and deal with it, you know. As we're looking forward here, um, you know, and I'm going to be conscious of your time here. We'll talk, you know, a couple more questions here and then we'll, we'll call it a day. But, you know, as we're looking forward to when this is all, I mean, I don't think it's going to be done for a while. You know, the more we learn about, uh, the, you know, it looks like it's going to be a while before we get a vaccine, for instance, you know. And so, so it's going to be touch and go here for a while and live music obviously is um you know live music and, and face-to-face uh education uh you know in the same room you know uh as much as you could put somebody on a facetime um and i th- and i think or 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 some zoom right i mean i think those are all really good you know i've been thinking a lot about how all detroit musicians need you know, we need to, we need to get a sponsor and everybody needs to have good zoom recorders and good video in their homes and good computers. And, you know, so they can at a whim, you know, at a moment's notice, uh, uh, connect, you know, and, and a lot of musicians just don't even have that, uh, some of those basic, 
pieces, you know, and of course the students don't all have those pieces, right? So there's going to be a, there's going to be a remote learning. There's going to have to be a remote learning revolution here in Detroit uh, coming up soon. Um, but what else do you, when you look ahead, what, what, what do you think could really help? Uh, not just, not just for you and, and Wendell, but the, the other musicians you talk to, the young people, what, what do we really need to do that maybe even we weren't even doing before the pandemic, right? What, what, what would you like to see, uh, moving forward in terms of, I don't know, state, state supports, local city support, corporate support, whatever it is, but what are the things we want to have, uh, uh, when we get back um well when we get when we get back to normal because you know music is especially jazz you know you don't stay in a room and play jazz by yourself you know you have to interact with other people um i think that uh while the master teachers like are still around um i think we need to open up the opportunity to um, have things like, are, are you familiar with like is San Francisco Jazz Orchestra? I, I, I'm not, but I'll, but we can, yeah, tell us say more. It's, it's like, you know, um, it's a wonderful uh, jazz uh, band, um, big band and orchestra, but they feature, you know, they have different writers, guest artists that come in and perform and, and write for the ensemble. And they have their like their own radio time on Sirius XM. Um, I think they provide scholarship opportunities for for uh, upcoming jazz artists, um, you know, and then, you know, so I think we need to think um maybe put together that and then this is something that Wendell was talking about mm -hmm. um, putting together a um, a really strong uh state kind of jazz orchestra okay you know and i think he him and maybe rodney whitaker kind of kicking that idea around to see how uh they could possibly make that happen where the band could record possibly do with some touring you know, right. Um, that kind of thing. I think that's one of the things that's that's lacking. Um, because if that that then there that way there's an ongoing arm, you know, an outlet for the for the young musicians gaining great experience working with masters. It's in, intergenerational. Um, yeah. You know, and could even I, be a multidisciplinary. You know, so. Yeah. I think you know. Uh, you know, Detroit Sound Conservancy has been in, involved in trying to keep alive the memory of the Greystone Jazz Museum. And, you know, in the 80s, you know, they were able to find some of that arts funding, you know, for jazz concerts, right? And do dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of those shows. And we have some of those tapes uh, from those performances. And yeah, absolutely. The, the band members are, and people, some people in their 70s and 80s at that time, you know, uh, on the bandstand with, you know, who, who now are veterans, but then were just kids, you know, and, uh, you know, a Jerry Allen playing on an ensemble with the Marcus Belgrave, you know, with ex members, the McKinney cotton pickers, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, you know, and, and yeah. And I think that, uh, it was really, 
sometimes I think we look back at the eighties as, as, you know, it depends as it could be a very rough time, you know, already in the, in the eighties state funding and federal funding was sort of going away from the arts in many ways, but in Detroit, there was still a lot of arts funding running around in great, great performances, great programming and a big emphasis on music. Um, and, uh, I think what you're reminding me is, is that we need to sort of, you know, you can't go backwards, but how can we, how can we foreground music as, uh, uh, how should I say it? Uh, uh, the, uh, the greatest amongst equals, you know, we don't want to say it's better than painting or something like that, you know, or whatever, but it is in Detroit musicianship really is. Well, what do you think about it? I mean, what is musician? Why is music, important to Detroit as opposed to any place else? What, what's its role for us? I mean, I think music is important all over the world. I mean, it's not, mm-hmm. it's, it's just not a local thing. I mean, it reaches beyond all boundaries, I think, and it brings people together. So of all walks of life, all boundaries, you know, and I think that's what it does for everybody, not just for Detroit. You know, of course, you know, you have different things that put Detroit on a map, such as people like Wendell and Tribe and, and Motown and, and um, well, heck, DSO, you know, Detroit mm-hmm. Symphony mm-hmm. Orchestra. So right. um, I think, you know, it's not just uh, Detroit. I think every nook and cranny of the world needs art and music. Because if you look around, everything that you look at, I don't care if it's a piece of furniture, <laughs> you know, that's art. Mm-hmm. If you yep. sit in a chair, somebody designed that chair. That's yep. art. <laughs> yeah, so, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I think, it, you know, number 45, uh, that's what, you know, he had something to say about he didn't think that art was important. I'm like, what about that table you using, dude? <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, as as I was just uh, talking with uh, our other another community partner, Adriel Thornton, who's a uh, part of the sort of the greater dance community and uh, electronic music community. I've known him for many years. Uh, he also helps put on the Dally and the Alley every year and other performances in the city. And you know, he just said it very clearly. We were talking together. You know, Detroit musicians are essential workers. You know, um, they're you know, and and that's 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 intense to say because right now we're, we're all so lucky to have, you know, the nurses and the doctors and everybody else who's, who's really putting it on the line. But um, if we come out of this and um, Detroit is no longer a musical city, right? Because we're basically putting everything on pause for over, I don't know, it could be a year, right? We could be putting a lot of things on pause for a while. So I think we have to even be... even even some of the people, my friends who are working on the front lines as medical workers, they say a lot of times what brings them through the day is a great song. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. What's what song? What are you listening to besides uh, your own? I mean, obviously you have a piano in, in your house and you can perform for yourself and play when you want. But what what kind of music are you gravitating to to sort of chill you out when um uh maybe 45 or other things are happening and, and uh, they may drive you nuts a little bit. Like how, what do you, what are you going to, what are you going to right now? I like all types of music. Um, but here in particularly, I'm going to prepare to do a tribute to, um, my favorite pianist, composer, role model, band leader, who was, uh, McCoy Tyner. 
Uh huh. Right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. He influenced. Who just passed my, away? Right, and he influenced my playing a whole lot. So I'm, uh, you know, um, gathering a lot of his material, and I know a lot of his material anyway. And I've even been able to be able to have fortunate for reviewers to say that they remind that I remind them of McCoy, which I was just flabbergasted. I'm like, well, what are you guys been smoking? But whatever it was. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) But uh, he's somebody I always looked up to and um, always thought that he was a great innovative player. And even Wendell said, you know, you and McCoy got a lot of things in common. Of course, McCoy was born in 1938 and played with John Coltrane. So I don't think I'll ever be the master that he was, but we do have a lot of similarities in our compositions and and music and and things like that, and maybe some approaches. So I said, I'm going to work on doing a tribute to McCoy. So that's what I've been. Did you ever hear him play live? Oh, yes. Uh huh. A couple of times. And I did get a chance to meet him once and, you know, had a conversation. And I think he kind of inspired Wendell to um, this was back in the 90s um, when I got a chance to meet him. And then I saw him when he came to Detroit, I guess, around in 2014 or something when mm-hmm. he performed at the festival. But, you know, and him and Wendell's conversation you know, because Wendell had a relationship with the Coltrane household as well. Sure, And sure. he was telling Wendell that how important that he felt it was to to keep holding jam sessions for the young musicians. Yeah. You know, because they're not really getting the opportunities like, um, you know, like it was when McCoy was coming up and when Wendell was coming up, you know. So, yeah. so and I think that really inspired Wendell to you know, to keep the beyond the school stuff, you know, have the kids come over and play once a week because there's certain things that they're not going to get from certain people because of the, you know, the development that Wendell had when he was coming up. You know, band leaders would tell you certain things to do, um, you know, while you're playing with the group to teach you your role and, and, and how to approach certain things. And, you know, a lot of these band leaders aren't going to tell you that now. So yeah. McCoy was kind of inspired. Um, Wendell said, man, you know, we got to keep that going, you know? He said, because they're not going to get that from everybody. And he said, yeah. you're one of the few ones that are still around that can that can offer that to them. So, well, we got to find a way to do it and uh, obviously keep both the kids and Wendell uh, healthy and safe uh, because he helps me so far. So, um, good, you know, um, I think, you know, it's because, you know, Wendell, you know, of course he can't go to the gym now, but cause everything is shut down, but he, you know, he always is vibrant and got that energy going. So <laughs> knock on wood, you know, it's 77 years old. A lot of times, you know, the other people around his age is sure <laughs> that ain't happening <laughs> no well listen uh, uh pam i appreciate you i appreciate your time today and talking with us and you know best of luck and best of health to you and wendell and to rebirth and um you you know you and i'll stay obviously in touch in terms about uh what's next and you know the west side and music and and just where we go from here so um thanks for taking the time today 
All right, no problem. And same to you. Sonic Solidarity was recorded and produced by myself, Carlton Bowles. It was edited and engineered by Detroit Sound Conservancy's projects manager, Jonah Raiden Silverstein. Our theme music was performed by bassist Marion Hayden and saxophonist Deshaun Jones in front of the legendary Bluebird Inn 